matters of the mind. Are you looking for answers, ideas, or just want someone to listen to you so you can vent? Join Dr. Peter Sacco as he discusses what matters most, issues that surround the mind. He gets to the heart of the matter when it comes to issues involving anger, depression, addictions, fear, anxiety, relationships, sex, abuse, bullying, and everything concerning you. And now, here's your host, Dr. Peter Sacco. Well, hello there, and how are you doing on this beautiful February 4th? Kind of feels like spring out because we've warmed up a boat. Well, I'm old school, 15 degrees Fahrenheit, but I guess another storm is coming our way. So I hope you're all safe, sound, and definitely if you're driving today, tonight, or whatever, be careful. I guess another storm is coming. So I'm Dr. Peter Andrusacco. Thanks for tuning in to everything that matters revolving the mind. And with me always is my co-host and producer, Todd Miller. How are you, Todd? Doing good. I'm not frozen. It's nice. It's a little gray, but uh, I don't know. It just feels like a nice winter day today. Yeah, today, actually, I would say that nice winter day. Went out, got my Starbucks, feel all comfy, warm, and cozy, and I'm hoping that today only gets better than that. <laughs> yeah, let's not set the bar too high, right, for today? <laughs> and speaking of bars uh, being set high, uh, we got a pretty good show today. In fact, um, very, very uh, fortunate to have a tremendous guest who is a Boston terrorism expert and psychologist who specializes in uh, terrorism, examining it, studying it, and she's going to be talking about the accused Boston Marathon bombers as well as terrorism as a whole. We've had a lot of people over the last year and a half, um, and many folks know that I, I teach uh, a course actually called Cults and Terrorism, and one of the questions I've been asked often is, why don't you talk about that on your show since it's so prevalent in the media? So, you know, I taught, I'm going to guess if I was to go out on a limb, I'm sure everybody's familiar with the term ISIS by now. Uh, I would think so, yep. So what do you think your thoughts on them? Do you think that um, ISIS is something here that's going to be staying? Do you think that they have a, a tremendous influence that it can actually touch us Canadians, I mean, on our home soil? You know, there's an interesting scene in the last James Bond movie called Skyfall where, um, just grant me permission here for a couple minutes, where M, the head of the organization, was dragged in front of the government to say, we think you're wasting time, there are people dying, and you're not able to to solve the problem. And she said, you know, 50 years ago, we knew who the enemy was. The enemy was a station, a, nat a, 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 a nation, a state, a group of people. Now it's everywhere. It could be three people in Canada linked to some organization overseas. It's so much harder these days to really pin down who we're fighting, where we're fighting, and what they're doing, because it's it's seamless. It's borderless. It's, it's electronic terrorism. Um, you know, there was all that hubbub about North Korea hacking into Sony's computers and disrupting their networks. Was it them? I don't know. But it could have been. It could have been some guy in his underwear in Copenhagen. You know, that's the problem. It's just virtual and it's endless. And I think you bring up an awesome point because now what you're, you know, you, you bring up the premise of technological terrorism just done through the Internet done that way, which when you think about it on the big picture, because when I teach this course, Cults and Terrorism, I've always said the terrorist act itself is, yes, first, and unfortunately, it's a horrible act where individuals get killed. 
hard, you know, innocent individuals that are in the wrong place at the wrong time, and you get these, uh, basically, for a better word, people that just disrespect life for that matter. But the key issue is what they're trying to instill are two things, fear. And basically, by instilling fear and creating fear, you can debilitate an economy, and people don't spend, they don't want to get out there and then. And if you look at this, Todd, think about this. Like, how brutal would it be as if they could literally create some terrorist internet virus to literally wipe out systems that we couldn't communicate anymore via internet. You know, everything runs on computers, even phone lines and internet structure. So cyber terrorism is huge now because it's so easy to accomplish anything from anywhere in the world. And you can do it almost virtually anonymous because you can hide behind um, servers and IP addresses. It's really, really ridiculously easy how you can accomplish what you need. And terrorism used to be about, and still is to these days, about killing someone, about bombing, about, you know, gross acts of violence. But it can also now be, I'm going to bring a government to its knees with one keystroke on my computer and cause a lot of harm. Now, no one's going to die from this, but people will be out of jobs, economies will be ruined. It's pretty scary. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, uh, when we have our guest on, Alice Lucicero, um, who specializes in homegrown terrorism, and actually, just to point out, she's visited with many young victims of trauma, those that have survived at all corners of the world. And she, her research uh, basically looks at anything from ISIS recruitment efforts in the Middle East all the way to child exploitation in Sri Lanka. And, you know, it's interesting, Todd, and I think because she is an expert and she put a lot of focus and emphasis on the Boston Marathon bombers, and I remember seeing them. And it's, you know, it's just like literally yesterday because it was not too long ago, just um, under two years ago. When I saw them, that was not what you were expecting to see, I guess. Back in the day, you know, you would expect this haggard, possibly much older individual. But yet you had basically just kids doing this. You know, and that's the thing, too. I mean, now it's it's anywhere from ages, the early teens to, you know, grandparents can be involved in this. And, and like I said, you used to know who the enemy was. Not not to profile anyone, but it was pretty clear that during the Cold War, we were against the Russians. And the Russians were generally all located over in Russia. Um, so that was what it was. There was a stalemate and Cuba was involved. There was a Cuban Missile Crisis, and I'm not going to go back there. But it was pretty pretty easy to figure out who the bad guys were. Now, like I said, it's not so easy because we've got people that can move around. There's passports, there's borders are coming down, there's walls coming down, people can move freely. So you never really know, is this guy down the block who seems kind of strange? Is he a cyber terrorist? Is he a real terrorist? I don't know. It's kind of scary these days. It is scary, and I think anybody who's a parent listening to this at some point, you know, you're thinking, gosh, what if this one of these individuals is actually in my kid's school and they decide to do uh, one of these acts of terrorism? And I just want to point out this type of act of terrorism that they would be committing in an act of, you know, in the name of something like an ISIS act or a Middle East terrorist group or some other organization, you know, even the IRA or whatever, is a lot different from, say, the Columbine shootings. Well, that was more of a, a rhetorical response to bullying and, you know, rejection, low self-esteem. Um, and then, you know, these individuals, Eric Harrison, Dylan Klebold, had inflamed egos. But what I'm thinking and what my worry and concern is now is if you get some of these individuals, these younger ones that buy into this, because as you say, Todd, they've got access to the Internet. They can see it. What if these people 
start recruiting young ones, and I'm saying young ones, young teens on the internet and say, hey, I know you're, you know, we need you to do this stuff at your school and that. Then that's a real scary concern. You, you know what? I think you you just hit it. I think it's already happening. I don't even think it's what if it would happen. I think it's already happening in, in various chat rooms. I mean, it's it's about, I think personally, it's about seeking out the disenfranchised, seeking out the lone wolves, seeking out the people that feel they don't belong and getting them to feel like they belong to your cause and your cause can be as nefarious as you want it to be. And it's like, hey, you know, you do matter. You matter to me. Why don't you help me with something? And and you'll feel great. You'll belong. You'll have a sense of purpose. And I think that's happening now. Absolutely. And you know what's interesting? I brought this up in a lecture last night and I was talking to students. I said, you know, interestingly enough, some of the best recruitments are that these individuals, these organizations look for are college age, university aged, disgruntled students. But these are usually the smart cookies, those that really do know what they're doing, um, have the technological training and all this kind of stuff. So they're not picking these people off the streets, folks. They're finding them right in colleges, universities, and I believe now coming to high schools, which is a scary thought. So with that said, when we return, we're going to have a tremendous guest. We are absolutely thrilled to have Alice Losicero talk about terrorism, not only the Boston Marathon, but ISIS recruitment all the way to exploitation of kids in the Middle East and Sri Lanka. We'll be right back. You're listening to Matters of the Mind on Listen Up Talk Radio on talk-radio.ca. you'll hear on Out of the Blue will be jazz for the most part. No specific styles or genres. Every piece of music is handpicked to deliver quality performances. Out of the Blue can be heard on rtds.ca, live Mondays 1 to 3 p.m., and encore performances Tuesday to Friday, anytime on demand. It's the true spirit of jazz, a touch of everything and then some. Thanks for listening. I'm Larry Green. Peter Andrew Sacco, and do you have technological rage? Oh yeah, the new rage of anger. Download my new book today, Technological Rage, on my website, www.petersacco.com, and learn what technological rage is and how it is sweeping people today, leading to online dating anger, texting anger, and social online networking forums. Hmm, did you ever think you might get angry texting? Facebooking or online dating, maybe you never thought it would happen to you, or maybe you know somebody that has this and you just need to understand it a little more. Welcome back to Mental Health Matters with your host, Dr. Peter Sacco. Well, hello there. 
Welcome back to Matters of the Mind on this beautiful, I want to say beautiful because it has warmed up a lot more on this April 4th, even though we have about two and a half something feet of snow out there and more is on the way. But that's all happy thoughts because we had a tremendous guest as we were talking about before break. We have Alice LeCicero, who is a tremendous expert, psychologist, author, who specializes in homegrown terrorism, talks about it, and has a great interest and a great research background in what went on with the Boston Marathon Bombers. Welcome to our show, Alice. How are you? I'm well. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it, Peter. So before we dig in, um, I guess, Alice, first of all, um, like yourself, I'm a psychologist, but I never really went into any specific training in the area of... Um, Terrorism, and I was, as we were talking about as the show started, I do teach a course. I've taught this for about 12 years now, and I go out and I will speak to organizations and law enforcement on cults and terrorism. So I kind of grew into it through working with police and then working with experts that kind of trained me kind of on the go. So with that says, uh, said, Alice, how did you get into the whole interest in terrorism? Well, two, uh, two ways. First of all, at the time of the September 11th attacks, I was teaching at Suffolk University in Boston. Uh, Suffolk is about a mile or so from the airport. And as you know, a couple of the planes, the ones who, that flew into the World Trade Center, took off from that airport. And it affected everyone, uh, as you might imagine, uh, in many different ways. Several of us in the field of psychology really started to reflect on how it might affect our careers, our research, our research programs, and so on. Uh, and also, uh, students were asking wonderful questions. I was teaching a class in social psychology at the time, and teachers, st students were asking incredibly insightful, deep questions. Um, and, I, and I was uh, challenged <laughs> to try to answer them. And, and in addition, one of my doctoral students, um, uh, Justin Sinclair got very interested in pursuing research in this area, and uh, and we we partnered and and worked together on it. The other thread is that I have done a lot of uh, work with victims and family members post disaster, and that includes uh, post September 11th, some of the Massachusetts uh, family affected families, and a whole bunch of other. Um, uh, major disasters, natural and human caused, as well as personal ones. So, from both angles, I was—I've become quite interested in uh, trying to figure out how we can prevent future terrorism. I'm interested. You, you said that you—you you are helping the families through it. Is it—is it a blend of compassionate care and also—is there a learning element, or is it strictly just being able to provide them with some comfort after a, a horrific events? I think it depends on at what point you're talking about. I think immediately after uh, a horrific event, it really is, as the, the Red Cross has the term, uh, compassionate presence. But it's also um, being as practically helpful as one can in a situation like that. It might mean anything from making sure someone has water who needs it to having a phone to call their loved ones to finding a... AA meeting if they feel they, they need to do that or whatever kinds of uh, things come to hand that we can be helpful with. Uh, after, I, I should finish that, I, sorry, after, I mean, a long time after, people may want to do some work um, in order to um, move on uh, uh, with their lives. And especially in public 
grieving. It's, it's very complicated for people to then be able to move on with their lives. So with this, Alice, um, I guess going forward then from 9-11, um, you know, we are up here in Canada, as uh, a lot of folks down there say all the time. And, you know, it, this deeply affects us, especially since uh, myself, I work in the States quite a bit. I teach in the States. Um, and, you know, and we look up our way because we, we can honestly say we've been truly blessed in the fact that we have not had any real severe incidences of, if you want to call it, um, international terrorism, which has occurred on our soil per se. Generally, what we would get here are domestic acts. And as Todd and I were talking about, it would be something like, you know, horrific, like a, a high school shooting, something like that, or a mm -hmm. workplace. So I guess with that said, do you see a big difference between the two types of terrorism that are going on in the United States? Because uh, we were talking about this, Todd and I, uh, before we brought you on, that wow, with, with cyber terrorism now, these folks can literally recruit homegrowns within the United States, let's say, and get them right out of high school. Yeah, that, that's, uh, when we've seen that here in the U.S., uh, most recently, uh, some young women, some young girls from Aurora, Colorado, and a young man in Ohio who seemed to have gotten quite interested in uh, um, being recruited. And yeah, through the internet, they can make connections with people who may then uh, instruct them as to how they can be helpful to whatever the cause is that they are particularly interested in. Um, I, I want to just, if, if I could, though, put this in perspective. As I said, my uh, goal is prevention. I'm talking to you here from my office at Boston Medical Center, and we provided emergency care to the marathon victims and ongoing care. We're really well aware of the devastating impact that a terrorist event such as the marathon bombing can have. But to put it in context, because in order to prevent um, future terrorist acts, we do have to be rational about it. We have to be able to analyze the situation. And we tend to get hysterical. <laughs> Honestly, I think there's a, a tendency to be very uh, overly focused on, on terrorism. And I, I just pulled up a few statistics just to kind of put it in context. So there, there certainly have been horrible long-term effects, and, I, and I, don't, I don't in any way want to minimize those from the marathon bombing and also from September 11th. But I'm looking at some statistics from 2010, which are the most recent I could get. In the U.S., we had 32,000 deaths from auto accidents, 35,000 from drug overdoses, 19,000 from suicides by gun, 11,000 homicides by gun. It's, you know, there, there's a lot of horrible stuff that goes on that we need to pay attention to. And so I, I think there's a tendency because it makes for good media um, excitement for us to get overly involved. And, I, and, and that makes it hard for us to step back and, and think rationally about it. I think you raise some very valid points. I think the you know the the traffic deaths, the suicides. I don't mean to make it sound less than it is, but they're not sexy. They're not um, 
you know, yeah. things that grab media headlines. Right. And you can have, like I said to Dr. Sacco before, we were talking about um, in the James Bond movie Skyfall, where they were talking about, you know, who was the enemy. And at one point in time with terrorism, you used to know who the enemy was. It was a, it was a country. It was a nation. It was a state. Mm. It was a group of people that, that lived near each other and had the same beliefs. Now those people, because of international travel and whatever and the Internet, they can be anywhere. And I think that's really what causes people the most concern is they're not worried about their neighbor necessarily shooting them, but, you know, through a domestic violence act, but they are worried about him blowing something up because he looks a little different or he's from somewhere else. And I think that's really what causes the concern is that it's it has a, a sexy factor to it and it really plays into people's fears a way more than than other types of incidents. Right. And that, of course, was the, is the goal of terrorism. It, terrorism are acts that are perpetrated by uh, people who believe they have a disadvantage. And so their way of, of so-called, in their minds, leveling the playing field is, is by causing disruptions and disequilibrium in the enemies. Um, their their enemy, uh, who they think of as an enemy situation, and so uh, ter- terrorizing people, scaring people to death, is is part of the goal. And so we don't want to play. I mean, we it would be better for us to not play into that goal. And I think um, Peter, you might re- remember, um, as uh, uh, soon after September 11th, a whole lot of psychologists, especially people in the social psychology field, took a hard look on at the um, uh, possible. Um, Outcomes that should try to, that the U.S. should try to avoid while doing counterterrorism action. So to try to uh, fend off and fight terrorism, but not to do it in a way that would have um, uh, uh, unintended negative consequences in the U.S. And so we, we have to keep we have to keep our eye on those things, and we we have to uh, to be uh, aware that some of the things that are done in the name of security can also have um, can also make people more worried uh, and, and thus less likely to be able to think rationally. So I'm, I don't want to push that point too much. I just want to make it as a, as a basis for uh, talking about why I got interested in, in looking at terrorism from, an, from a scholarly perspective. You know what, Alison, I'm glad you bring that up, especially, you know, absolutely. We saw this after 9-11, um, the chaos, the mayhem, the fear, generalized anxiety disorder rates going up, um, agoraphobia, everything, actually, you know, fear of traveling. But here's an interesting thing I want to throw out. Um, because we're reading about and seeing so much terrorism in the media, literally on uh, Facebook, you know, you're, you're seeing constant inundations with ISIS updates and all this stuff. We're seeing it um, on the news everywhere. At a certain point, and I've tried to wrap my mind around this, do you think as a whole the public starts to get desensitized to this? And the more and more these acts are committed, people get so desensitized and numb to them that some, and in some respects, they don't have the same fear factors they once had to them. I haven't seen it yet. <laughs> what I have seen is an increase in, in rage factor um, and, and, and uh, an increase, and we've seen it actually uh, reported very, uh, very scientifically since September 11th, ups and downs in uh, hatred and hate crimes towards uh, Arab Americans and Muslims and people who resemble Muslims and Arab Americans. And so, but I... I um, 
I imagine that we, you know, desensitization is a possible outcome. It's a little bit controversial, but it might happen. I haven't seen it. Maybe you've seen it. I don't think I don't think I've seen it though. Um, it's an interesting phenomenon. The reason that I ask is because, okay, our generation, yours, mine, Todd, we grew up in very peaceful, if you want to call it living, uh, a living social society. This never existed really on our home soil. This kind of stuff did not exist. Whereas if you go to parts of the Middle East, those generations that are our generation, they grew up to this, they knew of it. It always went on and on. And I've had friends that have been in the militia that have been over there. And some of these guys have never fired a bullet outside of the, a shooting range. And then to get shot at and all this stuff, they're quaking. And then they watch the locals that are there just like, oh, um, yeah, this is a normal thing hearing mortars go off and that. And it's yeah. interesting because the folks here today in this generation that are growing, uh, being raised, born post 9-11, this is all stuff that's been ongoing in their lives. And it can yeah. be really interesting to see if they have a greater acceptance and tolerance um, of it versus us that we just see it as a you know an outrage still. Yeah. Well, uh, one thing that I could uh, add to that conversation is I one of the things that I did uh, early on in my interest in kids uh, being recruited to terrorist organizations. I spent some time in Sri Lanka. This was during the Civil War, and I interviewed kids and adults. Uh, the Liberation Tigers of Tamil Elam and Sri Lanka were, are one of the most, well, they're defunct now. Um, they, they were one of the most notorious um, terrorist organizations in modern time. And they, it, it was a fight over land and power, not a fight over religion. But neither of the parties to this fight were Muslim. Uh, the uh, Tamil Tigers are ch uh, chiefly Hindu and the Sinhalese are chiefly Buddhist. But in that context, I did see kids, you know, I, I saw kids seeming to be pretty calm when there was gunfire in the background. And so perhaps that speaks to your point. These were kids who had grown up in, in a war zone. On the other hand, uh, the amount of post-traumatic stress disorder that teachers and care workers were reporting was a, a pretty significant. And in fact, some, a group of teachers asked me to come back a few years later when they had kids after the war come into their schools and they had to um, figure out how to counsel and support them with their trauma symptoms. Many of them had uh, significant losses. So it's, a, it's, it's an interesting question, one that probably bears a ongoing research to figure out what, what does happen with kids. And, and is it a real, um, you know, maybe they appear to be um, numb to it, but is it a real numbness or is, there, is it the kind of numbness that comes as one of the symptoms of trauma? So that'll be real interesting to learn to understand that better. Interesting. I'm reading a Malcolm Gladwell book where he talks about this unique phenomenon where they were interviewing all these people that survived the great bombing in, in Britain, um, and he categorized it in three categories. One of them was near miss, where somebody was bombed uh, but survived, and they developed this sort of laissez-faire attitude about it, where it was just like, oh, a bomb went off, and they went about their day, and they're out shopping, they'd hear the air raid sirens, and then they just sort of keep on doing what they were doing. They became desensitized to it almost as if they felt... Uh, you know, like they were, they were not going to be harmed by the next yeah. one. Yeah, how interesting. But what I really wanted to ask you was, with the Boston bo Marathon bombing, and, and I guess all of these larger scale um, terrorist acts, I want you to speculate. Do you think it's intended to cause as much harm as possible, or is it intended to cause as much fear as possible, <laughs> or both? 
Yeah, well, it's an interesting question. I mean, I, I don't think I have to speculate on that because the ter- terrorism, people who, scholars who have been studying terrorism way before September 11th, uh, agree that, uh, and, and this is a quote from a scholar named Brian Jenkins, that terrorists uh, don't want a lot of people dead, they want a lot of people scared. Um, and I, I think that um, that's probably true of, of most of the contemporary uh, incidences that we, that we know of. Um, so and again, it's that destabilizing factor that comes along with the fear. So the intended damage is more psychological than physical? Psychological, but it's also economic. If you look at some of the, at least in the U.S., the after effects of September 11th came in many, many different arenas. They were psychological, they were social, they were, they were economic, they, they were, um, uh, they changed sort of priorities of the government and priorities of, of, uh, of citizens around security versus privacy, security, um, security versus freedom of speech and so on. And it's, it's still, we're still kind of settling from that. I, I think there's still a lot of change going on and a lot of confusion in people's minds. And I, I think, yeah, we were talking about it, the fact that the ultimate goal is, as you said, um, Alice, is to create fear, mayhem, chaos, total throw off, you know, the equilibrium of a society. But then I, I think when you do that, you achieve your ultimate goal, which is to debilitate a society economically. And you, you guys were, you know, had that and it affected us here in Canada and being in the States quite a bit, actually a lot lately, uh, your economy is starting to really come back. It's, especially I can speak of that in Western New York, it looks pretty darn good and all yeah. that kind of stuff. And I think that's a great thing. So I guess going forward, um, I guess, you know, do you think they look at this, members of these organizations, these factions, and say, okay, what better way to, you know, to do it, you know, to get our message across than go at them again? Or is it, do you think it's expected by, you know, the higher-ups thinking, okay, this is when they'll strike again, so we're ready? Well, it's an interesting question. I I suppose all of the above, um, but I think it's only one factor. There, there undoubtedly are many factors determining when or how um, a group might strike, including some opportunity factors, which I think is where some of the so-called homegrown terrorists come in. So if somebody, a bunch of people uh, or one or two people decide who, are, um, who, are, who have American passports that they may, or European passports, that they're interested in, the, in some cause and they want to go and say join a militia, the recruiters might say to them, well, yeah, join our militia right here, wherever the here is. Or they might say, you know, you can do us a lot more good going home and doing something because you have a passport. We'll have, we'd have a much harder time getting to your country, but you have a passport so you can, you can be there and do something, do something small. They may offer some support. They may not offer much support. And sometimes it's uh, because they believe, apparently because they believe that the people wouldn't be great working in a team. And other times it's because they don't care whether the person would be good in a team or not. It's because they have that ability to, to work within the country. 
Um, before we go to uh, our, for our break with you, Alice, I want to ask you something, and this is something that was asked by, I get asked quite a bit by students in lectures, even friends, colleagues, and that stuff. And, uh, you know, I'd love your perspective on it because I can't really on, an, or honestly answer this because um, I don't really have the stats on it. But are we seeing more or a greater predominance of women getting involved in terrorist activities where they're not the stand by your man or being forced to, or you're going to be killed by your man mentality, but rather that they're actively engaged in it and they're accepted as an equal in terrorism by their male counterparts? I think it varies by area. Uh, in Sri Lanka, the Tamil Tigers were always an egalitarian group, so there were always young women as well as young men in the organization. There's a wonderful, um, wonderful, sad, painful, difficult video by a Norwegian filmmaker uh, called My Daughter the Terrorist, which is about a, a young woman, um, a Tamil tiger in Sri Lanka. And it, in this, the uh, filmmaker interviews her mother and was allowed to follow some of the girls in training. That's one area. I think that also, if I'm correct, and I, I might, I'm, I'm pretty sure I'm correct, uh, in Chechnya also there were quite a no have been over a long time quite a number of, of females who were involved in terrorist actions. I think, though, it varies from place to place in the world. Uh, I'm not sure it's changed. It, it may have changed, but I, I, haven't, I can't really say that for sure. But I can say that we know it has varied over time in different places. Yeah, I kind of I figured that it's it's interesting how this the trends of even within terrorism are changing as well too. And with that said, folks, we're going to go to break. When we come back, we're still going to definitely be talking with Alice Lucero because we do not want to let her go because she's got some great things to say, especially talking about her great book, Why Good Kids Turn Into Deadly Terrorists. We'll be right back. Buying or selling a home, condo, or investment property may be one of the largest transactions you'll ever make. It's important to gather as much information as you can, and preferably from experienced, successful professionals. When it comes time to make your move, call the Mulholland Ross Real Estate Team with Keller Williams Real Estate Service at 416-230-8500 or visit www.realestatetoronto.com. Whether you're making your first move or selling your much-loved family home, the Mulholland Ross Team offers over 26 years of real estate sales and service across the GTA. Listen every Sunday at 4 p.m. here on Radio That Doesn't Suck to hear the team share advice and information that will assist you with your personal wealth through real estate. Questions or topics you'd like to see covered? Email info at realestatetoronto.com or call the Mulholland Ross team at 416-230-8500. Welcome to my new book, Niagara's Most Haunted Legends and Myths, which is not just a book about ghosts and haunted places, rather about history in the Niagara region. This book explores and uncovers parts of the Niagara region which are considered some of the richest in North American history and the most haunted. As a matter of fact, one of the bloodiest battles in North American history, the War of 1812, between the British and the Americans was fought here. And this year, the bicentennial year anniversary of the War of 1812 is covered in this book. This book explores most of the haunted places, legends that have 
existed from the 1800s right now to 2012. Each chapter covers a different type of landmark which not only educates readers on historical significances, but also entertains with anecdotal ghost stories and paranormal investigations. Join me in this book as we visit beds and breakfasts, ships and boats, trains, tunnels, museums, mansions, highways, forts, cemeteries, waterfalls, and many more, and see if the Niagara region is really haunted. Niagara's Most Haunted Legends and Myths is now available at Indigo Chapters and online on Amazon.com and BarnesandNoble.com and visit our website, www.niagara'smosthaunted.com. Be afraid. Be very afraid. Welcome back to Mental Health Matters with Dr. Peter Sacco on radio that doesn't suck.com and rtds.ca. Well, hello there and welcome back to Matters of the Mind, where everything on your mind matters to us. And you guys have sent us in tremendous questions over the last month, over the last year, over the last couple of years. And we are deeply appreciated, uh, appreciative of it. So continue to send them in because this is what gets us great guests on our show because you want to hear about stuff like today, homegrown terrorism. We have a tremendous guest, Alice LeCicero, who is a Boston terrorism expert psychologist and who has written a tremendous book on homegrown terrorism and with a very special focus on the accused Boston Marathon bombers which is still very readily um, at, you know at the forefront of our minds because it affected all of us that day because it was just a horrendous act of uh, dishumanity especially to very very good people so Alice you have a great book called why good kids turn into deadly terrorists so I'm gonna I guess, ask you the most obvious question. Why the title? Is it true? Well, thank you uh, for that question. It is true, although I understand that it's very counterintuitive. Sometimes when I'm giving talks, I will show photos of a number of children around the world who are kids. You know, they're young kids. They look kind of cute. Um, many of them were actually extraordinarily good kids with a very good um, goals. Several wanted to be physicians and so on. And then uh, all of those kids turned out to get recruited to uh, and joined up with terrorist um, using operations and were engaged in one way or another in terrorist actions. Uh, and it's, it's such an, it starts out as such a counterintuitive idea. How could a, a child who's particularly good then go on in life to do something so particularly awful. And we, we have to look at, because it's not just the Boston Marathon, accused Boston Marathon bombers. Um, there are kids very much like them in other countries as well. What we need to really, the, the link that we really need to understand is the recruitment link. So what we, the very simple pattern that's emerging from really around the world is Kids who start out good, who start out really wanting to have a meaningful life, often, as I said, in the healthcare field or something like that, who, who are vulnerable for one reason or another, uh, seriously vulnerable for one reason or another, and who have grievances. Um, they may be, they're all legitimate in the, in the kids' eyes. I mean, they may be legitimate or not so legitimate in other people's eyes, but they, 
they are felt as legitimate by the kids. At that point, or at some point in their vulnerability, someone enters the picture. They may invite the person into their life, or the person may just sort of find their way into their life. But the person or group, which I'm referring to as recruiter, is usually a very unscrupulous um, person or entity that cares little or nothing about the kid as a person, but sees the, pers- the kid as fodder, as a means to an end, as a way to advance their goals. But they're quite good at talking the kids into thinking that they're going to be doing something very meaningful in light of their grievances and something that will help their cause, whatever that cause happens to be. So, I mean, it would be great if we could get rid of all the recruiters. I don't see that happening in the near term. I think the best thing that we can probably do is to start early and try to inoculate kids against these kinds of unscrupulous, um, manipulative recruiters. Okay, here is a question, and I'd be totally remiss if I didn't ask you this because I've had somebody want to know about this. Video games. So, very violent video games um, that individuals play. Does this set them up in a precarious way to be recruits for terrorist activities because of this love of violence? If they're choosing the games and watching them and playing them because they love the violence, they become desensitized to it. Do you do you think, Allison, in your you know, in, in your humble opinion, that this makes them more susceptible to want to try this out in the real world, especially if they've already crossed over to games like um, paintball, airsoft guns? You know, they're out there shooting each other, playing that mock stuff. Do you yeah, know? I mean, do you, sorry, go ahead. Do you think there's a crossover effect here? Yeah. I mean, it's a very plausible idea. It's it's very appealing as an idea. There are some things that we have to think about. No one of the factors that we could even think of, even if we just brainstormed lots of factors, no one factor is going to have a very big impact in this. So if if we worried about people playing violent video games, we'd have to worry about an awful lot of people because a lot of people find them pretty appealing. Um, The same is true for kids who are vulnerable. The same is true for a whole lot of different factors that enter into this. Um, including, by the way, family history of uh, trauma, which is over generations for most of the kids. But none of those things causes somebody to become a terrorist or to get, you know, um, into a terrorist organization. It's really the the combination of many ingredients and an, uh, an element of timing. So I would say that the same kids who may be recruited one day, maybe six months later, they wouldn't be really resistant to recruitment because of one reason or another. So there has to be a whole bunch of ingredients. I, don't, I think we, would be, we have to be very careful about um, pointing to one factor. I will say, though, that while we're on the topic of video games, that the recruiters are incredibly sophisticated in their methods of recruitment, and especially on their um, Internet media. Uh, when you look at the recruitment um, videos and you listen to the re- recruitment audio, they're incredibly uh, well designed to appeal to adolescents and, and often particularly to auto- adolescent males. Uh, and 
I mean, it's 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 pretty impressive uh, when when you listen to them, especially from a psychologist's point of view, to realize, wow, they really understand developmental psychology in a in a gruesome, morbid sort of way that they know how to how to hook kids in. I've I've looked at a lot of the and listened to a fair number of the videos for for a, for a um, another kind of a gruesome example, the uh, Islamic State group, which the so-called Islamic State. Um, have a, a video that's uh, based on Grand Theft Auto. And it's a pretty appealing, interesting video. It's based on that, but it's really geared to people who are interested in being uh, engaged in real-life violence. So um, I, I think, again, there's many different factors. Uh, I'd be a little concerned if someone was you know, pretty obsessed with uh, violent video games. But not only because this might be a sign that they would be tending towards personal violence, but just to try to understand it. So, in your good book, in your book, "Why Good Kids Turn Into Deadly Terrorists," um, reading the synopsis, it, it, you talk a little bit about what can be done to prevent some of these people. And, and in our earlier discussion before we got you involved, Dr. Sacco and I tend to tended to to agree that these recruiters potentially prey on kids with self-esteem issues, lone wolves, kids that don't feel they belong. Does some of the prevention just go into good parenting? I mean, just straight old good parenting with, with you know, proper discipline, um, instilling self-esteem, keeping your kids involved in extracurricular activities, and or, or does it go further than that? Yeah. So I, I completely agree with you. Good parenting is a, key, is, a, is a really key thing. Not all parents are able to pay as much attention to their kids as would be optimal. And it's not because they're bad parents, but they may have other um, concerns. Perhaps there's illness in the family. Perhaps they're, they're working hard just to make ends meet and so right. on. So, But good parenting, and again, it takes a village. It's not just good parenting. It's good, good teachers. It's good coaches. It's good neighbors. It's good clergy. Uh, it's it's, it's uh, people who care and and who listen. I, I do want to say the lone wolves probably are a little more likely when we're looking at things like school shootings. Many, in fact, my colleague Scott Atran, who uh, uh, has done a lot of work in this area, really talks about the influence of the group as being um, critical in, in kids' recruitment. So it's not as common to have lone wolves be recruited to terrorist groups. In fact, um, another colleague, Clark McCauley, points out that uh, in any terrorist act that would involve collaboration, such as 9-11 and a whole bunch of others, they don't want people who are lone wolves to be participants in those. They would send the lone wolves off to do something like the... um, the shoe bomber or the underwear bomber or something right. like that, Suicide. not to be part of a group action. And I think, you know, it's interesting about this, Alice, uh, just flipping through and seeing that you, you know, you had written a book called Creating Young Martyrs, Conditions That Make Dying in a Terrorist Attack Seem Like a Good Idea, which is interesting because, you know, Todd brought up the idea of good parenting uh, would probably solve a lot of this and prevent a lot of this. But I think the issue is, is that when you have individuals that are highly dysfunctional, highly violent, that believe in their cause, believe that they're doing good parenting because they're just following the next generation uh, or prior and prior and prior before, this is all they knew was this terrorism, to try to do it in the name of their beliefs, they really do think that this is good parenting. They think they're they're helping their kids to die a, a good death or have a meaningful life. 
and I think that's where the community has to come in. I really do. I think that, you know, you've talked about this, I'm sure, in other shows, but the whole idea of listening to kids is so crucial. You know, what's on their minds? And making yourself someone, which is hard as a parent or as a teacher, or, you know, some kids are not going to talk to their parents. They'll talk to their teachers more or coaches. But having the community be really interested in the thinking of kids. What are they seeing? How does the world look to them? What are their uh, questions? What are they concerned about? And really, I agree, that's a big part of good parenting, but it's also a good part of uh, a good part of just being a good person who cares about kids, whether it's a neighbor, an aunt, an uncle, a grandparent, um, everybody, the community. And I think com- people in communities have to get together and really listen hard to kids. And when kids are talking about things that seem like legitimate grievances to them, really openly explore those. Some of them will be legitimate grievances. Some of them won't. But uh, really try to help kids to find productive ways to deal with the things that they worry about or that they think are, are, are wrong in society. And I think that really helps kids find that, yeah, you can have a meaningful life, work for a cause without harming others or yourself. So, so, kind of shift gears here, which is still, you know, kind of in line with parenting and all that stuff. Uh, how and when did you get involved with your research with child exploitation in Sri Lanka? And can you explain? Because uh, I'm sure we have listeners that are going, okay, what kind of child exploitation are, are we talking about here? Yeah, well, uh, as, as I mentioned earlier, my um, now colleague, who was then my student, Justin Sinclair, and I got a, um, began to do some research in the area of, for example, fear of terrorism, one of the things that's still very important in the U.S. We also just, in general, we started a, a group called the Society for Terrorism Research, which is still ongoing as an international group. And we were um, invited to uh, write about uh, something of our choice, which was fabulous. The publisher wanted to publish something. And we, we looked at what we were really interested in and what students were asking about, which is how kids get recruited. And um, I, well, we and, uh, wanted to look at a group that was not a Middle Eastern group because we felt that there was a lot of, at that time, a lot of uh, emotion about that and not a lot of rationality. And so that's why we, we decided to look at the group in Sri Lanka. Um, and so it was mostly to understand why, why, how kids reacted to the, um, there was a tsunami, there was this ongoing war, and then there was this terrorist organization. And it was really what kids were thinking about recruitment to, to a terrorist group. But by the way, one of the things, the key things that we learned is that kids felt it was okay for young kids to be involved in violent actions if it was for a good cause. From their view, I mean, don't get me wrong, we may not think it's a good cause, but they thought it was a good cause. Um, and that's, I think, why we really have to listen. I mean, how are kids thinking about these things? You know what, when, Alice, when you're talking about exploiting and recruitment, what is the typical age of the, of the child on, you know, on an average scale? So it depends a lot. I mean, in, in, in Sri Lanka and in, um, well, I have a friend, actually, who was, conscripted by the Khmer Rouge in Cambodia many years ago at age six. So these things, um, depending on where you are and how uh, who is involved, the ages, I mean, it's, it's, it's shocking and horrifying to think how young uh, some of the kids are. I think that in the examples of the so-called homegrown terrorists that we've seen in the U.S. and in the EU, most of them are adolescents. 
Um, so between 15 and 20. And with this trend, um, now you know, you're doing the research and that stuff with Sri Lanka. Has it improved or is it decreasing in terms of this exploitation and recruitment? Well, in Sri Lanka, the war's over, and um, the, uh, that's a very long story. But uh, there is some question as to whether the, there are some people who would like to reinvigorate the, the um, LTTE. But the war's over, and at this point, the island has uh, re relative peace. So that's done. But in terms of overall in the world, that's a really interesting question and one that I, I'd, have to really, I'd have to do some research to, to answer that, that question. We're seeing more in the news, but does that really represent more? I'm not sure. So I think, you know, looking at this um, from an educational perspective, I don't know what you guys have in your schools now. I think, uh, you know, at the um, secondary level, because I think that's predominantly where you could probably talk about this more often. But do you guys, or should there be courses incorporated that basically are anti-terrorism courses, which, you know, take the same focus as anti-bullying. Do we need to be more predominant within the schools in terms of educating individuals and saying that this is wrong, even though they may learn and be learning that this is right? And let's just look at, we have, you know, you have domestic terrorist organizations within the United States, KKK organizations uh -huh. like that. So is it time that this is thrown right out on the table and make it more of a social skill, of course? I've, absolutely. I've talked about the same thing, Peter. I guess we can tell we both have similar training. Um, I've even used the example of bullying. But I would start much earlier myself, but, you know, in age-appropriate uh, ways. And it's actually being done in the U.K. There are some, uh, and, and in other European countries, there are some sort of um, experimental projects working with younger kids, uh, including kids around eight or nine. And my thought would be, yeah, it, the idea would be, in my mind, would be more of a critical thinking question, really helping kids. And adults have to be involved. You can't just, you know, teach this to kids and then let them go on their own. It has to be an ongoing community effort uh, to really helping kids ask the right questions. When someone's trying to talk them into something, why me? You know, what do you want me to do? What's going to happen if I do? What will happen if I don't? Um, who's going to benefit if I do? I mean, these are questions that could be asked when somebody's trying to get you into a bullying situation as well as if someone's trying to recruit you for anything. I mean, some kids who may, may be athletically inclined but don't really want to are being recruited into teams that they may decide, you know, fun to watch, maybe I don't want to be on that team. I think all, all the kinds of recruitments that, that kids are subject to, it would be great if kids had support and tools to be able to assess the recruitment process and decide whether or not they, they really feel it's the right thing for them to do at a given time. And yes, of course, um, adult guidance includes um, that, that violence is not a good idea uh, and, and also doesn't lead to a productive life. I mean, it's not only that it's a terrible thing to do, but it's also ends the possibility of a productive life. And there's so many other ways to help your cause. Absolutely, else couldn't have said any better. Why good kids turn into deadly terrorists? Tremendous, awesome book by our guest, Alice Lo Cicero. Before we let you go, Alice, for anybody wanting to learn more about you, or even possibly contact you, get involved in your organizations, what is the best way that they can go about this? So the book has its own website, uh, which is the book's name, Why Good Kids Turn Into Deadly Terrorists dot com. And on that website is um, 
uh, is is a uh, a form to fill out that you can contact me. But I'm also pretty pretty easily I can be contacted. Just look up my name on the web. I have a Psychology Today website. There's a whole lot of ways you can find me. And please, I'd be very very happy to talk to anybody who has questions or wants to be involved. Thank you so much, Alice, for joining us. But before we let you go, I want to. I want your prediction. Are we going to have an early spring this year? A real spring for a change? <laughs> let's not base it on the groundhog. <laughs> let's just, let's hope for the best. <laughs> Thanks so much for joining us, Alice. Thank you. And for anyone uh, listening, if you want to find out more about Alice, you can check our blog post. Uh, we'll have links to the book and various sites. You're listening to Matters of the Mind on Listen Up Talk Radio at talk-radio.ca. We'll be right back. You can That is a wrap for our show. Thank you so very, very much for tuning in. And thank you for your questions. Sending them to me on Facebook. Sending them to my personal email, which always does. i got to redo that talk. <laughs> okay. Well, folks, that's a wrap to our show. Thank you so much for tuning in. And thank you for the continued emails that you send our way, telling us what you want to hear on Matters of the Mind, because everything that's on your mind also matters to us. And tune in next week for a tremendous show. Have you ever wondered what life skills coaching is all about? we got a great guest, Karma Spence. She's going to talk about it. And have you ever thought about getting a life skills coach? Maybe you just might after listening to her. See you next week. Same time, same bat channel.